0: Surely have a plan. There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view. Find the more you think you know, the less you really do. Where would we be without THC? We know the lion to us, just don't know to what degree. Where would we be? Side chat show. Great and company.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Higher Side Chats. Today we are dusting off that old motif of alien abduction with a guest who's been with us since episode 25, way back in 2012. And yes, abduction by strange beings in the night is still an unsolved situation that we may never have a complete picture of, but many, many people have told very similar tales that generally go like this. Somewhere, in darkness and isolation, they feel an eeriness in the air, they see bright lights pierce the silent darkness as they approach, in a haze of confusion they find themselves taken aboard an unrecognizable craft, Strange beings start to tinker under their hood, reassuring the Taken that they're fine and this is all for their own good. And finally, they're dropped back off in the simulation right where they left off, confused, disoriented, and missing a chunk of time that defies logic. It's the rough outline to a pattern many of us have heard about hundreds if not thousands of times, most likely with many more keeping quiet about their similar experiences out of embarrassment or without even having a clear enough recollection to speak up about it. And while we might not be much closer to figuring out what that all is, today's returning guest Nick Redfern tackles a slightly different question in his latest book, Top Secret Alien Abduction Files, and that question is, what does the government know about this whole thing? Because while we're told it's all silliness and they've never had an interest in looking deeper, Nick has been digging up documents that show a very different approach and attitude to these encounters, and they offer some insights that do help us fill in some blank spots on the map. So let's do the damn thing. The king of creepy, the sultan of strange, the apex of paranormal Riders, my friend and yours, Nick, welcome back to the higher side.
2: Hey, Greg, how's it going? <laughs>
1: Better every day, my man, and I just appreciate how long you've been stopping by to talk to us about this weird world. You always seem to find a new angle that pushes the needle just a bit closer to knowing what the hell is going on with some of this stuff, I believe this is your 50th book, my last show of the year. It's all working out. And I love the angle of parsing through and just drawing attention to huge government files that a lot of people are probably surprised even exist. So kudos to you. And to kick this off, I am curious because a lot of these cases go back to the 50s, 60s and 70s. Did you write this now because you're actually maybe able to get better access to documents once enough time has passed?
2: Well, that was part of it. I mean, whenever I'm writing a book, you know, or planning on writing a book, you always want to come up with something which hopefully, you know, is going to give the reader something new to talk about and think about. And over the years and decades, I mean, there's been dozens and dozens of books written on alien abductions, maybe even hundreds. And I didn't just want to go over old ground, but the abduction phenomena has always sort of intrigued me and interested me. And I thought, well, there's an angle which I could talk about that hasn't really been sort of extensively dug into. And this was about 18 months ago, two years ago, something like that. And so I thought, what angles are there? And over the years, you know, I've got snippets of stories from abductees which seems to suggest that they were under some sort of surveillance, if you like. So I dug out those older cases that I'd got and then followed up on a bunch of other threads and dug and dug and dug and so on, to the point where eventually there was enough material to put a good, solid case together, that the agencies really do take an interest and a concern in the abduction phenomenon, even if they're not fully sort of conversant and understanding of exactly what's going on.
1: Yes, man, that's a great summary. I think this is a... Really solid angle for a new book. What does the government know about this stuff? I think people might be a little bit surprised to hear the numbers, but how big are some of these files on these experiencers? Hundreds of pages in some cases, right?
2: Well, yeah, if you go back to the 1950s, for example, which I talk about in the book with the contactee movement, which came before the abductee phenomenon kicked off. The reason I mentioned the contactees in the book was to demonstrate that there are files that show government agencies have a long-standing interest in claims of alien-human interaction and contact. And to give you one example from the 50s, George Van Tassel, who was one of of the big players and having UFO contact and supposedly being taken on board UFOs and so on, his FBI file actually runs to just over 300 pages. So you're talking about a huge amount of material collated and put together on a man who claimed alien human contact. So it's important to note that these files are not sort of hearsay or leaked documents, you know, which could be a questionable, legitimate or not. But in many respects, In fact, not all the cases in the book, most of them, the documentation that I've got is through the Freedom of Information Act of the US and the UK. So, in other words, you know, we're on solid ground because we're talking about genuine official documents.
1: Yes, and I'm glad you brought up the Van Tassel saga because I think a lot of people are vaguely familiar with it. But here in San Diego, whenever I drive up north, I usually can see the Integratron from the highway, and I always mean to plan a trip, but I guess I didn't really realize it was so connected to this thing. I guess I thought it was just a new agey place. I know they do sound baths by appointments. I've had a friend go there and said it was a really great experience. So, I mean, it's on my list, but I never get down that far. Now I might, because I think it's very interesting that It's connected to Van Tassel. Can you tell us a little bit about the Integratron and and how it folds into his saga?
2: Well, it all goes back to Van Tassel himself. Now, George Van Tassel was an interesting guy in the sort of pre-flying saucer era. He worked at Hughes Aircraft, which was run by Howard Hughes. He actually became good friends with Howard Hughes and developed an interest in the subject of aviation. Now, what happened was that in the uh, late 1940s, Van Tassel and his family moved to the town of Landers, California, which for people might be wondering, it's out in the California desert, and not too far from Joshua Tree. And they moved to this one particular area that is known as Giant Rock. And the reason why it's called Giant Rock is because the main sort of thing you'll see when you drive into the area is this gigantic, huge rock, which looks like a classic meteorite that sort of slammed into the ground, you know, from outer space. But it actually isn't. It was, and it still is, you know, a large rock that was sort of native to the area, so to speak. And Van Tassel and his family, in a very strange fashion, they actually built an underground home for themselves beneath this gigantic rock. Imagine something like a 1950s version of the Flintstone homes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like that. But he was a very skilled guy, and as I said, he built this hollowed out home, deep under the ground, deep under giant rock and had electricity and hot and cold water all plumbed in and everything. It was like a really cool futuristic home. And it was during this period that Van Tassel claimed that on a number of occasions he saw ufos over the skies of giant rock and landers and that whole area to the extent that on one occasion one of these craft came down and landed and it was described as being you know like a typical classic 1950s era flying saucer like a sort of silvery circular craft and reportedly there was this very human looking entity came out of the craft long hair that was the only difference really It was that the guy had Long hair, you know, which the guys back then in the 50s certainly didn't wear. And there was this exchange, almost like a philosophical exchange, between this alien and Van Tassel. And like so many of the early contactees, he was warned about the perils of atomic war and how we needed to lay down our atomic bombs, etc. And they encouraged. Van Tassel to look further into the UFO subject, even to suggest to him that he should put on yearly conventions as a means to bring the whole issue to the attention of the public. And that's exactly what Van Tassel did after having received numerous more visitations. And he put on a yearly conference at Giant Rock, which attracted audiences and I'm not exaggerating now, between ten and 12,000 people at the height of the interest in his claims. Now, you know, if you look at UFO conference attendances today, you'd be lucky to sort of get three, four, five hundred 500 people. You know, that's sort of the average you get at conferences today. As I said, Van Tassel was getting ten to 12,000 people, and he would put on these seminars where you would have sort of the leading figures in 1950s ufology coming along and speaking in this huge outdoors environment. And he really did become a significant figure in 1950s ufology. But like a lot of the contactees, politics and religion came into the equation as well. And the FBI attended a number of his seminars and lectures and particularly noted his claims about how. Things like Noah's Ark, for example. He said it wasn't just an old boat according to the Bible. He said it was actually a fleet of flying saucers, if you like, that when the flood hit came down and salvaged as much of the people and the animals as they could. And he said that's how the legend developed. He also put an argument together as to how he felt that the Star of Bethlehem was a UFO. And of course, talking about altering mainstream religion in 1950s USA into UFO stories, you can see why the authorities would sit up and take notice, and they certainly did, the reason why the file was created. As you said, Van Tassel is probably most associated with the Integratron, which is this two-story building, which he almost built on his own. He hardly had any help at all, and to demonstrate how skillful he was at building things, The Integratron itself does not comprise of any nails, screws, bolts, or anything like that. It's all purely wood, and each piece interlocks into another and keeps it all in place. You know, and it's a really intriguing structure, you know, to imagine two stories, you know, people go walking and trampling around upstairs and banging their feet, but there's no problems with it at all. Every piece is just purely and perfectly interlocked. And the plan was, according to his space brother friends, was that technologies would be provided to him that would allow to massively extend the human lifespan. But he died in 1977 before he could continue this work. But the legacy still lives on and people still flock to the Integratron and Giant Rock all the time. Almost like a spiritual trick, if you like, that kind of thing.
1: Mm hmm. That's a great summary. And of course, that contact in the desert conference is up in that area or it was before it moved. I think that's where we first met in meet space for just a brief moment. And it's just interesting because I knew a little bit about the details of his visitation. I just didn't know he was given the plans for the Integratron or that Howard Hughes was a friend of his. I mean, you got this guy on the forefront of aviation going out to the desert to hang out with this other guy who got plans from an alien for some exotic technology. I mean, that's a sweet spot for me. And you mentioned that he died before the Integratron was open. Did he die suspiciously? I've read some reports that consider his heart attack curiously timed.
2: Well, it was up in years. You know, he was like pushing 70. Mm. I guess people can look at it from different perspectives. But I mean, there was a lot of intrigue in his life for example, I mentioned Howard Hughes. A lot of people don't know that not only did he work for the Hughes Aircraft Company, but they became good friends. And on one occasion, Howard Hughes actually flew out to Giant Rock and got to meet the whole family. And Mrs. Van Tassel was a really good cook. And she made these really tasty fruit pies, like cherry pies and things like this. And apparently, Hughes actually got sort of addicted and he would come out regularly just to eat the pies and hang out with George Van Tassel, which is like a really surreal situation, but kind of one of the sort of lesser known fun aspects of the story as well.
1: Right, that is cool. And I just like that aspect when people in the forefront of technology or exotic technologies cross paths with the paranormal, because it touches on... I guess both the strangeness of these general experiences and practical conspiracy, because I think it's pretty obvious we've been quarantined to oil-based everything, because that's what the robber barons had control of. So hemp was suppressed in exchange for plastics and lumber. Alcohol as a fuel was suppressed in exchange for gasoline. Natural medicine was discredited and attacked in exchange for petrochemicals. And... That's your normal capitalist bullshit. But then you can add in a story like Van Tassel, add in Tesla, who said he was getting messages about his technology. Apparently, they say the transistor was derived from whatever happened at Roswell. It really does feel like some cosmic force is trying to break that quarantine for our own good or the good of the planet, or at least they were in the 50s, maybe.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, things were actually quite different back then because a lot of Van Tassel's communications with the entities that he spoke with, and this goes for some of the other ones as well. It wasn't always that a UFO would land out in the darkness of the desert at night by Giant Rock. Sometimes it was a case of data being downloaded into his mind while he slept or when he was in like an altered state. He was very interested in sort of altered states and trans states, that kind of thing. and. He said that a lot of his communications came that way, literally downloaded at high speed. And even though he sort of talked about religion from the perspective of aliens, kind of like with ancient aliens today from that perspective, but he was also a very spiritual man as well who believed in life after death and the ability to extend life and things like this. So, you know, he wasn't just someone who claimed to have seen flying saucers or anything like that. He very much became, for a lot of people, like a teacher in terms of sharing his information and putting on the conference.
1: Yeah, it's just such a interesting saga. And along those same technological lines, in your introduction to the book, you equate the alien abduction phenomenon with our modern-day surveillance state. And it is interesting that thematically, it's definitely there. The implants people were experiencing then versus cell phones now. I mean, ultimately, a smartphone is just a tracking device that does enough other stuff that we want to carry it around all day for the low, low price of $1,000. And that connection is a lot deeper than just thematic, if there's any truth to the transistor coming from Roswell. And in that respect, the tech does seem to have taken us to a fairly dark place.
2: Well, I had this sort of debate, not just in UFO discussion, but also in conspiracy discussions, you know, the way in which we are becoming more and more like a surveillance type society. Now, you know, in relation to alien abductions, you hear about implants under the skin, tracking devices, the alien's ability to know where the abductees are at any given time, even if they move homes, et and etc. You're right, you know, when you look at today's technology, I mean, I don't have any issues or problems with the technology itself, but I think it's like a lot of technologies in our world today that if they're used in the right way, that's great. If they're used in the wrong way, it's not good at all. If you go back sort of 10 years and more, you'll see a lot of material about fears of at some point, you know, we're going to all be ordered to have implants whether we like it or not. But I point out to people, as you did, Today, really, there's no need for anybody in government to implant us at all because if you haven't got an iPhone, well, at least most people have got a smartphone, even if it's not an iPhone. And, you know, anyone who hacks into that system, your phone, you know, they'll see arguably what books you buy on Amazon, what your reading habits are, where you booked your next vacation, your doctors and dentists' address and phone numbers, and etc. 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 So, in other words, you can make an argument that we're already implanted—not with literal implants, but we're implanted with a tracking device in our pockets. As I said, the technology is great, but when it goes from being a tool that is very useful to becoming something that can be basically used as a tracking device to see what people are doing then the technology is being used in the wrong way it's how the world is right now but for me i've got a smartphone but i don't use it 24 7. you know i like to work 9 to 5 monday to friday five o'clock comes round, the laptop goes into sleep mode till the next day i don't do any work at the weekend and i turn my unless it's going to be needed <laughs> i turn my smartphone off at five and I don't turn it back on until 9 the next morning, I just switch off because I like that approach. You know, I like to do the work and the writing and the research and then I like to have a good time in the evening and the weekends, you know, and I don't get burned out. And so for me, I don't view my smartphone as the be all and end of everything and that's wonderful. <laughs> you know, yes. It's something I use when I need to. and. I don't feel the need to see how many likes I've got on Facebook every 10 minutes. You know, it really does go off from 5 o'clock till 9 the next morning.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm not surprised, man. You are notoriously disciplined, and you have to be to have this be your 50th book. It is really impressive. And I bet if the CIA knew you could bug everyone's house just by having it tell you the weather and ordering products when you talk to it, they would have had this done a long time ago.
2: (laughs) Well, there's so many things today that have the ability to be used as a surveillance tool. You know, smart TVs, Alexa, iPhone, smartphones. You know, the list goes on, really. People automatically think of laptops, desktops, but the list really is going.
1: (laughs) Indeed, more every day. And so we frame this thing up to where we have these nice alien visitations in the contactee experiences of the 50s, like Van Tassel's story. And then we transition, as the book does, to the more aggressive and invasive abductees of the 60s. What more can you say about this transition? Is there a certain case that you consider the turning point or the bridge between these two eras?
2: Well, yeah, that's a good point because for people who may be new to the whole UFO subject, they may well not realise that the little dwarfish, black-eyed, big-headed greys, which are you know a staple part of UFO legend and lore today, a lot of people may not realise if they're new to the subject that the greys weren't even in sight in the 1950s, and they only really started to have a presence in the early 60s onwards. Now, prior to that just about all of the contactees described encounters with extremely human looking entities and as I said earlier, mostly with long hair, but if they chop their hair off, you know, and cut it back, they really would look just like us. But throughout the fifties, for the most part, everything was dominated by the contactees. And just to give you an example of how much surveillance of the contactees was done, the list of contactees who Have files on them. It's somewhere between about 15 and 20 of the contactees of the 1950s, the high profile ones like George Agamsky, George Van Tassel, Truman Bethuram, Orfeo Angelucci, people like this who wrote books, who lectured. All of them had files, and nearly all of those files have been declassified. But things started to change in the latter part of the 1950s, and certainly one case that really kind of straddled the contactee era and the abduction era was the 1957 Brazilian case of a guy named Antonio Villas Boas which is one of the more controversial cases of that period.
1: Right, that is exactly the case I hoped you'd bring up because one thing I learned about this book that might disappoint the hardcore alien lovers out there but it's super fascinating to someone who is intrigued by the full scope of MK Ultra is the added subtext to this Antonio Villa-Boas account from Brazil. It's a pretty wild story, but I'd never heard about this Bosco Kovit guy and what he had to say about it. Can you take us through the story and the Bosco element?
2: Well, basically, Antonio Villas boas was somebody who lived on a farm in Brazil with his family, and he later went on to become a successful lawyer in Brazil, but at the time, when he was in his early 20s, he was still living at home and living on the family farm. And he'd been working late one night in the fields, and he saw this light coming towards him in the sky. didn't know what it was, certainly wasn't used to seeing any kind of aircraft or vehicles in the sky, you know, flying over the farm in this remote area. But he sort of stood and stared, and this thing got closer and closer and closer. And it panicked, Villas Boas, and he sort of fled towards the farm. He hadn't really got more than about 100 feet or so when he suddenly started to feel sick and ill, almost as if he'd been dosed with something. And when I get to that point again later, you know, that may well have been what happened. He started to feel groggy and his legs went weak and he fell to the ground. And he didn't pass out completely, but he was in sort of a really groggy, semi-awake state. And he later told a Brazilian UFO researcher, Olavo Fontes, told the story to him and said that he was taken on board this strange craft by these three guys in flight suits who took him on board. All his clothes were removed and he was put into like a very small shower, almost like a box-like shower. Then he was taken to another room and while he waited there, suddenly this beautiful, human-looking woman walked into the room and made it very clear that she wanted to have sex with him. And
1: Hello. Yeah.
2: yeah. And it started to come around fairly significantly from this groggy state. It was Whatever had affected him and allowed the three men to take him on board was starting to wear off. And he said that he really did have sex with this woman. And then... She pointed to the sky and then he was sort of unceremoniously slung off the craft which took to the skies. Now, in the one sense, you have the contactee angle because the entities, the beings, whatever you want to call them, look very human-like. And the ship itself, you know, he said it came down and landed and, you know, UFO landings were happening and reported far more back in the contactee era. Than they are today. You don't really get many cases at all of people seeing UFOs landing today. So that was another component of the contactee angle. But the big difference, of course, was that unlike Van Tassel and Adamski and all these other people who were invited on board and it was a very friendly situation, this was clearly an abduction, a kidnapping. Although it wasn't done by the Greys, it still was an abduction. So that's why this case is. Important and significant because it really does, sort of, as I said, straddle both arenas, so to speak. And that was the story until 1978. And it's a case which really does split people into different categories. You know, the idea of being taken on board for a lot of people and kidnapped and abducted is one thing. You know, for a hot space babe to suddenly come in and say, I want to have sex with you, you know, for some of the people in ufology in the 50s and 60s, that was just too much. And I think also because society wasn't quite as open then as it is now, they just didn't want to deal with the case. They saw it as embarrassing and something they didn't want to talk about. So at least parts of the story didn't really get the coverage that perhaps they should have done. But in 1978, a UFO researcher named Rich Reynolds, and Rich is still on the UFO scene, he's very active on the scene today. And he has a blog called UFO Conjectures. So if you want to look up Rich Reynolds' UFO Conjectures, you'll see what he's still doing today. But back in 78, Rich was contacted by a man named Bosco Nedelkovich. Now, nedelkovich was someone who grew up in Yugoslavia, but there were rumors that he had connections to Soviet intelligence and all sorts of sort of secret societies and things like this. And. He approached Rich Reynolds in a way that really, to this day, I don't think Rich fully understands why he was the one who was targeted. But Nedeljkovic basically said to Rich that he could tell him the true and false story of what really happened when Billis Boas was taken on board the craft. Now, if you go back and you read... Vilas Boas' original testimony that he gave to Dr. Olavo Fontes, this early UFO researcher in Brazil, what Vilas Boas actually said was that the craft, he said, if you imagine you've got an egg and you're able to sort of lengthen that egg into like a rectangular egg, he said that was the shape of it. And Vilas Boas also said that there was something spinning at high speed on top of what he thought was a UFO but it was going around at high speed in a circle. And he said that it was actually making a loud noise, and it was going whoop, 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 like that. And Nedelkovich said to Rich Reynolds that what he was taken on board was actually onto a helicopter. Now, you know, people would say, well, he said he saw a UFO. But as I said, if you read his exact account, he said it was an egg-shaped thing but pulled into sort of like a rectangle, and with the whoop 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 noise that sounds like the beating of the rotors of a helicopter, and this circular thing spinning at, at furious speed on top, you know, you could make a good case was the rotor blades. Now, the story that Nedalkovich told Rich Reynolds was that he, being Nedelkovich, was part of a program that was like an offshoot of MK Ultra. Now, MK Ultra was one of the early CIA programs designed to. Manipulate and control the human mind, and all sorts of different technologies were used and substances and psychedelics, LSD, mind-altering technologies and so on. And it was basically all done to see how and to what extent the human mind could be altered. And according to Nedelkovich, one of these subprojects of MKUltra was to use the UFO subject as a means to see how people's minds could be altered. In other words, if we can make people believe they're seen aliens, we can maybe make the Russians believe they can see anything that we want them to see. So it was really like a Cold War experiment using members of the public against their will or their knowledge and using the UFO motif as a reason to do this. And according to the story, that as this helicopter swooped low, Fabavillus Boas himself, that they released a mind-altering aerosol not so much a psychedelic, but certainly a mind-altering aerosol technology, which flawed in within seconds, but it was one that was designed to actually wear off quite quickly. In other words, it was designed to disable physically and mentally the targeted person. And according to Nedelkovich, a number of these sort of faked alien events were undertaken, primarily again, to see how mind-altering technologies could be used, but to do so under a UFO ruse, so to speak. Now, of course, the big question is, do we believe Vilas Boas, literally, or do we believe Nedelkovich literally, you know? And I guess we'll never really know, Nedelkovich died a few years ago, and Vilas Boas is dead as well. So, you know, it's really one man's account versus another man's account. but. When you read the story, Nedelkovich's actually does make a lot of sense, you know, in terms of the craft that Phyllis Boas saw in these groggy, weirded-out states. And this sort of begs the question, how many of these events are real UFO events and how many of them might be staged events designed to test out new and bizarre technologies?
1: Yes, it is a very curious thing, and I'm inclined to believe bosco netelkovic because you mentioned in the book that he did actually work for the u.s agency of international development at that time and i guess they have a connection to the cia and they were working in south america so a lot of the pieces do fit and also there's that element like you mentioned the sexual stuff it is definitely an element in play that sometimes a sensationalist story is created to cover up an uncomfortable truth. So if this kind of alien interaction was happening occasionally, which you also note, they carried out this type of stuff because they were concerned about some real cases that happened over in Italy, I, I think. So it's not like we're saying there are no alien encounters, but It makes perfect sense the CIA would engage in something like this, and it seems like Bosco was at the right place at the right time for his claims to be valid.
2: Yeah, that's an important point that you bring up, Greg, about, you know, I'm not saying that all alien abductions or even the vast majority are faked and fabricated using mind-control technology. I don't believe that at all. What I think is that the numbers that have been undertaken as a means to use technologies to fabricate these events is actually quite small, but Rich Reynolds made some interesting points, and he suspected or concluded that in some cases, you know, a lot of these UFO events occurred in a random situation, and the government was never there at the time to sort of see what was going on at the time, so Rich sort of speculated on the idea, and I think it is an interesting idea, that the CIA, back then, was deeply concerned how the general public was reacting and responding to the UFO phenomenon. And so, Rich suggested, what if the CIA actually staged some of these events and then sat back and watched how the victims reacted? You know, how did they respond to what was perceived as being an alien encounter? What was the aftermath? Did they start talking with friends, Did they start lecturing and writing books on the subject? In other words, the government may have been concerned how UFO abductions and interactions with us might well have a mind blowing or might have a profound effect on people's mindset and how they look at the world. And, you know, governments don't really want us to sort of think outside of the box. You know, they want it birth, school, work, death. You know what I mean? And I think a good case can be made that psychologically they planned and orchestrated these events to see how the public would react. And they could learn a lot from staging these events and then following and watching these people and seeing how their lives were altered radically or not by those encounters which actually weren't real. So I think a lot of it was mind games just to see how people would respond in an amazing situation and there wouldn't have been no real aliens involved, but the witness would not have known that. So I think it really was a case of, for them, being in the right place at the right time to initiate these experiments. But I think they did it because they knew there were real events going on. And so the best way for the government to find out how people responded to the real events was to fabricate some as close as possible. But the answers, would still be the same, you know, in terms of getting a response from the witness and the victim.
1: Mm -hmm. It's like counter espionage or something. It makes a lot of sense. And the point is kind of that the CIA got the idea to do this because there were real things going on they didn't understand. So they're like, well, we got to get ahead of this. We got to try to duplicate it, control the narrative, that kind of thing. Classic CIA stuff. And interestingly enough, there is also another case in this book where the quote-unquote visitor, uses the name Bosco. In fact, I think the report says that a bean showed up in this guy's room at night when he's disoriented and says, I am Bosco, and you have just been chosen to enter the Brotherhood of Galaxies. And that sounds so goofy, it sounds like CIA shit.
2: Well, if you look back then, there really was a lot of weird psychological warfare stuff going on. Now, it wasn't just in relation to alien abductions, but if you think about it, Trying to figure out how the human mind can be altered and manipulated, but doing it behind a UFO umbrella, that would actually allow agencies to say, well, it's nothing to do with us because the witness said they saw aliens, you know. So it actually, on the one hand, they would learn a great deal about how people are affected by UFO events, but also they could hide behind the UFO Umbrella, as I said, and no one would really know it had any connections to government or intelligence agencies. So there's the camouflage angle as well. But it wasn't just things like MKUltra using technologies to manipulate people, but you also had, for example, a CIA connected group called the Psychological Strategy Board. And they got up to all sorts of bizarre and weird plans and projects to screw with the potential enemy. For example, Major General Edward Lansdale, in the early 1960s, he had plans to sort of disrupt the government of Cuba by projecting images of Jesus in the skies over Cuba, saying, turn to the United States and turn away from Castro and I'm here to help you. And in the end, they did not go through with the program because the technology just wasn't strong enough or advanced enough. And they couldn't get the images right on clouds, and they couldn't guarantee the clouds would be thick enough and in the right place at the right time. So they dropped it. But the files on this really weird program have been declassified now, and you can find them online. And they talk about how Edward Lansdale thought, you know, well, if we can project images of Jesus on the clouds, and we can have loudspeakers, essentially the voice of Jesus saying, denounced Castro. If we could successfully do that, you know, we could overthrow the government of Cuba and everybody will think it's due to a second coming. That was a genuine, real project that was put into place but but canceled because the technology wasn't there. But it demonstrates how, again, images in the sky, something coming down that wouldn't have been what it really was. There are a lot of strange things like that going on in the 50s.
1: Hmm, And I always keep the door open still that that kind of thing could occur if we ever did have some epic visitation. I, I don't know, I would take it at face value immediately. And I also wanted to ask you, so we can say some of these experiences seem genuine and some are the CIA messing with people, but what more can be said about the government's real concerns about the ET agenda, of these implants that were being found, and the underground theme that seems to come up in a lot of these cases.
2: This is the important thing, you know, which I do want to stress, is that I think the vast majority of abductions are genuine, and the fabricated ones were planned and orchestrated to be remembered because they were so weird, like Bill Espos having sex with an alien, things like that. The ones they chose to fabricate were the ones they knew that would stay within ufology for years and people would talk about them. So again, it would show how people could be manipulated even in ufology years later by obsessing and talking about these cases. You know, But in terms of the real cases, which I don't think they began with the Betty and Barney Hill case of September 1961, but what I do think is that that case, more than any other, really opened the doors to the abduction phenomenon and it became more and more accepted as the 60s went on. So what basically happened, September 61 you have Betty and Barney Hill driving home from Canada they'd been on vacation and heading back to New Hampshire where they lived and saw this strange light in the sky which didn't seem to be regular aircraft, almost seemed to be shadowing them through the forests and the mountains and so on. And they got quite concerned by this fact, there was no noise, you know, nothing like a helicopter. They stopped the car on a couple of occasions and looked out. It's a long and story, but cut it down. When they got home, the Hills found that the journey seemed to have taken much longer than it should have done. And then in the subsequent days and weeks ahead, both of them suffered weird dreams and nightmares of being taken onto the craft, but it landed and they were taken on board and subjected to medical experimentation. Betty said that some sort of needle-like device was inserted into her navel and Barney said that they examined his teeth and his spinal column and all sorts of things. And the story initially was kept within the family, but because it caused so much stress that the Hills sought out a psychiatrist and eventually reached the media. And then John Fuller, in 1966, wrote a book on the subject called The Interrupted Journey. And from then onwards, the whole issue of abductions slowly started to take off in the 60s, although there weren't that many cases, you know, there were still a few contactee ones as well. But it was really in the 70s, early 70s onwards, that the whole abduction phenomenon, as people think of it today, that's when it really started to kick off. But in saying that, I did find a number of very intriguing UK files from the early to mid 60s where people had experienced classic abduction type encounters, and which one particular division of the British military called the Provost and Security Services, that they had taken a deep interest in these cases, and particularly incidents where people had been driving home late at night and they'd seen like a strange light in the sky, the car would come to a sudden halt and then next thing they knew there was time missing. I talk about a number of cases like that in the book. One of them involving a guy named Ronald Wildman. This case was 1962, just one year after the Hills case in the United States, but Ronald Wildman lived in the south of England and he was taking a vehicle that had been sold to the buyer. And he was taking an early drive, like 3 a.m. in the morning. He saw this typical flying saucer thing come down. The headlights started to flicker on the car. And next thing he knew, he was just sat in his car. And then the car started up fine. For reasons we don't know or fully understand, but the Provost and Security Services took a deep interest into this case. Wildman, when he came out of this state that he was in, He just headed to the nearest police station and told the story. And within no time, the Providence Security Services were on the scene wanting to know what happened. And there's one interesting little quote within the file where one of the officers who prepared the paperwork said that Mr. Wildburn said he was muddled by the time, which suggests, again, like a missing time component to it. And there were a number of cases in the 60s that the Provost and Security Services undertook, and they were clearly seeing a pattern develop. And in many of the cases, the people they spoke to were young girls, some who had been abducted out of their bedroom window, another one where she'd been driving home, and very similar late at night to Ronald Wildman, and had a similar strange encounter. And she also told the Provost and Security Services of a nearby man, a Mr. Griffin, who'd also been taken on board one of these craft. And these are real files which you can go and look at at the National Archives just outside of London, England. And again, they show that for reasons we don't fully know, the Provost and Security Services were following these cases involved young girls, cars late at night, and people being taken on board. and The Providence and Security services they have a different name today, but they were sort of like the James Bonds of the Air Force. They would get involved in counterintelligence, espionage programs, and so for them to sort of focus particularly on abduction type cases suggests to me, even though I can't prove it, it suggests to me that they knew something about the abduction phenomenon, and they may have got that from their opposite colleagues in the United States, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. because. The U.S. and the U.K. has a long history of working together, and it wouldn't surprise me if the original sort of early '61 cases with the Betty Barney Hill incident, things like that. I wouldn't be surprised if some of that data hadn't been shared with the U.K. The intelligence services, and then they launched their own investigation.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, it really is pretty fascinating to get that hard confirmation of actual government interest in this stuff via the files and documents that you've seen, because a lot of people are probably surprised just by that. And when it comes to the government theories that you've seen that try to make sense of abductions, when they try to figure out what might be behind the implants or even the idea of hybrids, what are some of the things that governments have speculated about or maybe thought was behind the visitations?
2: Well, it's good that you use the words thought and speculation, because one of the things I found from not just the files that have been declassified, but also from all the witnesses and abductees that I interviewed for the book, it's pretty clear to me that although the government or government agency, when we say the government, I don't mean everybody in government is sitting on this big secret. That is now government works. You have agencies and you have within agencies, you have little think tanks and small projects that are funded here and funded there. And if you don't have the relevant need to know and the relevant classification, you don't know. So in other words, when we say the government, we're actually talking about small think tank organizations deeply buried within government that not many people know about. And what I found in just about all the cases is that there's good evidence that government agencies Know a lot about the subject in terms of the numbers and the basic scenario of people being kidnapped and missing time and medical experiments, that kind of thing. But unless I've missed something, which I don't think I have, all of the evidence tends to suggest that the government may not actually know the full and real agenda any more than we do. We often think that if the government's hiding something or any government around the world is hiding something. It's because they know what they're dealing with, and that's why they're hiding it. I think with the abduction phenomenon, they're fully aware that it's real and potentially has effects on national security issues if people are being kidnapped against their will. But I still don't think they fully understand what the agenda is and why this is all going on. And I think that's why the surveillance is going on, because they're still trying, after all these years, to fully get to grips and grasps with why these events are occurring. Is it connected with hybrids? Are they sort of creating an army of hypnotized slaves that will be turned on one day for some specific purpose? There's all sorts of different theories, and I think the government has sort of looked at all these theories and is still thinking, you know, hmm.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a head-scratcher, but I think it's really interesting the prospect that They thought possibly the implants that people have been given could be switched on at some point, turning everybody into a Manchurian candidate of some kind, or that there were potentially real concerns that ETs could be making hybrids underground. I mean, that kind of stuff, it's really interesting, especially when you see some of these documents because things will be mentioned so matter-of-factly because when they're writing these files, they're obviously not trying to be sensationalist, but you read some of these things and it's like, wow, uh, what plain terms to talk about some real epic speculation.
2: Well, you would almost always find that in government files. You know, they're not doing what I'm doing, which is writing a book and giving background description on, you know, it was a dark and stormy night. You know, you just don't see that in government documents, right, right. but you need to do that in a book so the reader gets a good understanding of how it all looks when it went down, you know. But yeah, one of the angles that I was told was that deeply did worry the government from the potential of it being real was this idea of could these implants be not just used as tracking devices, could they be used in sort of like you said, like a switched on situation where all of these abductees would suddenly become mind-controlled Manchurian candidates or with pre-programmed agendas to follow. You know, it'd almost be like waking up the morning after The Walking Dead begins, you know, where you get up and everything seems normal, and then you suddenly see a small percentage of the population has suddenly become different overnight, you know. They're not literal zombies, but for all intents and purposes. That's the scenario that some of the people in government were worried about, the idea that that people were going to be used in some fashion against their will, you know, unknowingly. And other people felt the fact that abductees had moved homes on multiple occasions and they still have these experiences, they felt they were sort of something more along the lines of a tracking device, that kind of thing. It fascinates me that it, it demonstrates, you know, that the government is interested and concerned, but it's also concerning that they don't really have the answer. And I think that's why they have followed these various theories. And that also applies to the whole issue of the hybrids. You know, you hear these stories of hybrid children and hybrid babies and people taken on board UFOs and being asked by the greys to hold these babies and children, almost like as a bonding process because the greys seem to be completely lacking in emotion. So they use us as a parent or a mother or a father, if you like, to try and instill some kind of sense of emotion and a bond between the mother and the hybrid, the hybrid, you know, have a degree of emotion, which the greys seem not to. So again, you know, just that idea itself of government people sitting around or intelligence people sitting around a table pondering on the idea of what are the hybrid children? Are they related to the black-eyed children? To realize that government agencies are concerned by tales of black-eyed children, you know, it sounds bizarre until you realize, and you take a look at the whole history of this and how and why the government has really come to realize it's a genuine phenomenon, you know, with a lot of odd and sometimes disturbing overtones to it.
1: Yeah, and it really does get me thinking, because if we had these people in the 60s on up feeling as if they were being used for reproductive purposes or to handle the hybrids or give them love so they didn't die, we should be seeing hybrids among us at this point, right? I mean, if that was the goal to even put them among us, maybe the goal is to take them somewhere else entirely. But, Mm. you know, a couple decades have passed, they would be adults at this point.
2: Well, some researchers, I don't mean government researchers now, I mean, some abduction researchers do actually think that the hybrids are among us and that they are now, you know, multiple generations, that they are indistinguishable from us. For example. David Jacobs in his book, The Threat, the title alone tells you what it's about. But he is someone who believes and concludes that there are extremely human-looking hybrids among us who may have infiltrated society and even government. And by infiltrate, I do mean that in sort of a sinister fashion. Now, other researchers don't go with that view at all. And again, that just demonstrates the nature of the controversy itself. But the other angle, which I don't know how many different agendas and angles they followed, but they definitely followed the implant angle, the hybrid one. And the other one, which goes down a pathway that a lot of people may not have thought about, and it is a very odd one, is the concern on the part of intelligence agencies that somehow the abduction phenomenon seems to be connected to the human soul. And that's something that pops up quite a bit in the book in various cases that I talk about where intelligence people who've gone out and interviewed abductees in a sort of clandestine fashion, not like a threatening fashion, but just, you know, we've heard your experiences. Would you mind if we come in and talk with you and see if you can enlighten us a bit, you know, and they had to sign non-disclosures and things like this, but some of the people did actually uh, agree to. And one of the questions that often popped up was, did you have any... Strange dreams like as if you were dead or if your soul was outside of your body and things like this. So again, precisely why the governments might think that there's a connection to the human soul is intriguing in terms of what they actually think is going on. And One of the more sort of darker and disturbing theories was that the greys are not living entities themselves. They're sort of like biological robots which eventually wear out, and the theory, if you read the works of Nigel Kerner, he's someone who really explains this to a, a deep degree, but basically it comes down to the theory that the greys, not being living entities in the way we think of it, are tampering with us and tinkering with us, trying to understand the nature of the soul, and if they can literally sort of implant themselves with souls to allow them to have an everlasting life. So that goes down some really odd pathways. But if you read Nigel's books, I mean, he puts together like a really interesting scenario of using science to sort of extract and then implant human souls as a means to have an immortal life, which the Greys as biological entities don't. Now, that is without doubt, you know, one of the more far out theories. But it was also one of the theories that the intelligence people were deeply concerned about. It doesn't mean they were right, that they got the right answer, but it does mean that they were extremely concerned by that soul-stealing angle.
1: Yeah, it is really interesting that the Greys would be trying to jailbreak the human soul, and it is difficult To kind of talk about because I don't even think we fully understand what that means or what consciousness truly is. So you have to really know the mechanisms in which our human essence really works, what rules it plays by to even know what the grays were trying to do. But you could definitely see the possibility that some biologically created creature or an AI controlled thing would look at us and be like, hey, wait a minute. There's something that happens after you die where your life essence does this other whole chapter of existence. I want to know what that is, and I want to see if I can peel your consciousness away and get it for myself somehow. I mean, you could see how that could be possible. It is fascinating. Man, you know, you write so fast. You've got to have some kind of other projects in the works. I mean, this has obviously been uh, a great conversation. But as we're kind of getting towards the end of the road, is there any word on your next project?
2: Yes, there
0: is.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've actually, it kind of sounds like I've been juggling two books at the same time, but I actually haven't. I've got the abduction book out now, and that publisher put that book out quite quickly. But about more than a year ago, I finished another book, or just around about a year ago, called Area 51. Now that company that's putting that book out, Visible Ink Press, they put theirs out six to eight months further down the line. Now, that one actually comes out on January the 1st, the Area 51 book, and it's already up on Amazon. You can see it on the. If you type Nick Redfern Area 51 in Amazon, you'll see the book. So that one will be out on January the 1st, but it was actually finished quite a bit before the abduction book. It's just different publishers have different time frames and so on. But that one will be out on January the 1st. Awesome. It's a very big book. It's sort of about twice the length of the alien abduction book. And it's sort of a history of Area 51, but focusing mainly on the whole UFO claims.
1: Yeah, I actually saw an article that I think you had recently written that ties into that, how the Russians were and maybe still are trying to figure out what Area 51 is all about. And it's even... Kind of appropriate because there's a Bob Lazar tie-in and, uh, you know, there's that movie out that everyone's talking about.
2: Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. I've heard varying different thoughts about it, but I'll definitely have to watch it then.
1: Yeah, I agree. The reviews are varied, but it's just good to have quality material out there, you know, quality from a actual technical standpoint about these kind of stories that have just kind of been in the underbelly before. and We didn't really have a lot of high production value stuff to look at or to circulate. So I guess it's all good.
2: Yeah. It's a strange world we're in when we're only sort of getting to see a small piece of it, you know, as to what's going on. But as I said, I think what it boils down to is that there clearly are people investigating abductions. I think They suspect there's a sinister side to it, but they're not fully sure what it is or why. And they seem to be following just about every possible theory as a means to get the answers, and which I think is the right way of doing it, you know, just don't follow this or that, follow the whole thing. Hopefully, you know, more files will surface, and what we've got right now is sort of the raw data files. What I'm trying to see is if we can get Files that would name the project and where they're working from and that kind of thing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. And there is one other question I just wanted to ask you, because if you ask Wikipedia about top secret documents, they'll tell you that the rules state a document can be sealed for 25 years, followed by another 25 years if necessary, and that no documents are sealed longer than 50 years. And that's obviously not true but I would believe that some things do come out because of that process. Obviously, you've covered a lot of things in this book and beyond that you got because of the passage of time. Are there any other cases that are sealed where you're excitedly waiting for enough time to pass to maybe get your hands on them?
2: You're right. There is legislation you know, to ensure that files should surface after a certain amount of time. But one of the problems is, is that when you have government programs, very often the research itself is contracted out to private corporations that do secret work for the government. You know, let's say, hypothetically, the US Air Force wants a new kind of radar system. Well, the Air Force itself doesn't build radar systems. They have corporations and companies that do that for them, You know, and there'll be a non-disclosure, and it'll be very clandestine and secret. Now, the research would all be being done by the company that makes the radars, and then they would hand it over to the government. But a lot of people don't know, even if you do work for the government, but you're not working for them, you're contracted. People who are contracted, and any documentation created by an outside company for the government isn't subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So in other words, let's say, for example, hypothetically now, that with the abduction program, let's say that a lot of the people they've got on board are like psychologists, doctors, medical experts, things like this, who might be consulted. And if they prepare reports for the group, well, those papers and reports prepared for the group would not be subjected to the Freedom of Information Act, even though they were prepared for the government, if they're written by outside bodies they're not covered so in other words that's a very good way from the government's perspective to keep things hidden by keeping it as a government program having people outside of the government to do the work
1: mm, yes yes makes a lot of sense that's the main speculation we get into sometimes is that a lot of this stuff is deep corporate and that places like Lockheed Martin they probably have more information than anyone and they don't have to share it well, man, this has been a lot of fun. I am always excited to have you on. I mean, it's great to be able to cover your 50th book on the last show of 2018. You are quite a busy guy, Nick, but I always appreciate your work and the discipline you have. Thanks again for taking the time. Anything more to tell people about following your work?
2: Not a great deal right now. <laughs> I don't get oh, yeah, one thing, if anybody's listeners in Utah, I'm actually doing my first lecture of 2019 will be the first Saturday in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'll be speaking. I'll actually have the data on my blog within the next day or so, so people will be able to find it there.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, always keeping busy. But, man, (laughs) thanks again. Always love what you do, and keep it up. All right. Thanks a lot, Greg. All right, man. Have a good one. Happy New Year's Eve, Hireside Chatters. Mm. Nick Redfern, getting the party started early. And hey, here I am, working on the holiday, but that's life, right? Big thanks again to Nick. He's always been great, a real staple of my conspiracy podcast journey. And So I thought it just aligned well with putting a stamp on 2018, his 50th book too. So impressive. But yes, it is a classic topic with some new details and angles. I definitely thought... Bosco's disclosure was interesting, especially since that other case I mentioned where there was a guy who remembers someone saying, hey, my name is Bosco. Welcome to the Galactic Brotherhood. That guy said he felt like he was injected with something when he was jostling around in his hazy sleep state. So it just makes so much sense. You come in, you shoot someone up with LSD, you take a few steps back. And you welcome them into the Galactic Federation of Blight, am I right? But I thought this was fun, just a broadly solid show that I think almost any THC fan can enjoy. If you like just the more practical stuff, well, this was an approach to that because it's the real government documents that are the subtext underpinning everything. So I think it works for a lot of different types of fans. Even Flat Earth folks should like it, because while it is about entities... You've got to explain these encounters somehow if we're in a dome and the MK ultra angle is a nice solve for the ET phenomenon. If you're going to say space isn't real, of course, there's always demons, right? That explains the soul sucking business. But guys, it has been a great year. I really can't thank you enough for listening. I hope I'm bringing you stuff that is helpful and entertaining. Gotta thank all the guests for December. I think Circumcision and the HPV vaccine are two shows that definitely have a place in the archive that is fairly unique. But, you know, I can say the same about Chris Knowles and Michael Wan. They're both amazing at what they do, too. So we covered magic, ritual, the synchromistic perspective, deep conspiracy, medical stuff and aliens as the icing on the December THC cake. I think the next thing you'll see from me is a holiday special for the plus people. That is the real treat this week, so keep an eye out. And there were also some people who left comments or wrote me asking for something really crazy and out there for Christmas. And to that I say, I am a bit late in classic stoner fashion, but we're kicking off the new year. With some serious strangeness of multiple flavors, I think you're really going to be into it. (laughs) Some unique ideas, to say the least. And I've just got one hell of a January mapped out for us already. I'm all jazzed up, so. If you just hear the free version of THC, you are really missing out. Signing up for a Plus membership is the only form of support that I ask for, and it's not for nothing, because the second hour is usually the best hour, just because of the natural flow of a conversation. In today's with Nick, we added several logs to the fire, talking about the Dulce base and the hybrid program, more on the soul-sucking angle. We got to get into the Chicago Owlman sightings of 2017. We talked to Lon Strickler earlier in the year. Well, Nick had a follow-up there. Exciting that some of these things are peaking in such recent history. We also talked about the underlying current of disclosure that we've seen in the last two years. There have been some weird things bubbling up. I wanted to pick Nick's brain about it because that guy has been in ufology for a long, long time. And we also talked about some details from this latest book related to which government agencies tend to have which kinds of files. And, of course, several other threads that all relate to the big picture today. Something is definitely going on out there, and I, for one, am going to be seeking out the Integratron before it's too late. So have a great New Year. Cheers to all of you guys. Be the best you can be and stay safe. I'm out of here. Your move, alien overlords, deep state mind manipulators, and soul suckers from outer space. Your fucking
3: move. Oh no, you see. The world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings. Control over everything. Try to steal ya now. Don't that job seem silly? Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings from some spy agency? Wish we were younger and free. I'll be thankful. A difference between us and the dance. Duh. Uh-huh.